Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 275 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about reincarnation research. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Many people around the world believe that we have lived before, that we experience a succession of lives so that when we die in one body, we're reborn in another. This belief, known as reincarnation, is found in multiple world religions, including major ones like Hinduism and Buddhism. It's also believed by various tribal peoples around the world and even by some individuals in the Christian West. But in the 20th century, parapsychologists started studying reports of reincarnation from a scientific rather than a religious perspective. One of the most famous researchers was psychiatrist Ian Stevenson. So what have parapsychologists found about cases of the reincarnation type? Is there any evidence that something paranormal might be going on in these cases? And what could possibly explain their findings? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, we've looked at the topic of reincarnation on the show before. Why are we looking at it today? We initially looked at the topic of reincarnation in a two-part discussion way back in episode 93, and then again the next week in episode 94. As a way into the subject, we focused on the famous Bridie Murphy reincarnation case, which is by far the best-known one here in America, or at least it was until recently. There are some more recent cases that are probably more famous today, and we'll talk about them in future episodes. But back in 1952, a Colorado man named Maury Bernstein hypnotized a housewife named Virginia Ty, and she reported memories of having been an Irish woman named Bridie Murphy back in the 1800s. When Bernstein published his book, The Search for Bridie Murphy, in 1956, it set off a reincarnation craze, and this became by far the most famous reincarnation case that the American public was aware of, so I focused on it first as an entry point to the topic. I didn't want people asking why I was ignoring the most famous case. But the Bridie Murphy case is shot through with problems, as we discussed in episode 94. Basically, lots of the things that Virginia Ty said under hypnosis were historically false. Uh, we have no evidence that Bridie Murphy ever existed, and we should have evidence if she existed, because there would be baptismal records of Bridie, her husband, and other people named in, in the hypnosis sessions, along with marriage certificates, business records, tax records, and death certificates but we don't have any of those things. It appears that nobody mentioned in the Bridie Murphy hypnosis sessions actually existed, so I don't think that the Bridie Murphy case provides us good evidence for reincarnation. Now, when we released these episodes, we got feedback from listeners that said, wait, you're not looking at the good reincarnation cases. You need to look at the work of Ian Stevenson, for example. And I was happy to acknowledge that this was true and that I plan to do just that in the future. Bridie Murphy was just the, the first reincarnation case that we'd look at because it was the most famous. But I fully planned on looking at other cases, including the research of competent parapsychologists in future episodes, 
So that's what we're doing today. We note it when one of us has a personal connection with the mystery we're investigating. When you were a teenager, you were a member of the New Age movement, and New Agers commonly believe in reincarnation. What was your attitude toward it? As I've mentioned, uh, when I was a teenager, before I became a Christian, I had been a follower of Edgar Casey. We discussed Edgar Casey back in episode 224 and again the next week in episode 225, so you can go back and listen to those episodes for more background on him. At the time, I accepted Casey's psychic readings, including his past life readings, without really critically examining them, and I did believe in reincarnation. I also had a friend who, as a child, reported past life memories. He told me that after he reported these memories, his parents had him checked out and that it turned out he was the reincarnation of General George S. Patton, which was interesting because General Patton himself believed in reincarnation and believed that in previous lives he had been present at many of the great battles of history. Perhaps not to be outdone, and I'm actually quite embarrassed by this, uh, I came to believe that I had been the reincarnation of King Richard I of England, also known as Richard the Lionheart, who fought in the Third Crusade in the late 1100s. But I never had any good evidence for this, and I regard it as just youthful foolishness. You'll notice that in both cases, George Patton and Richard the Lionheart, my friend and I were both claiming to have been previous famous people. Uh, this is common in many popularly reported accounts of reincarnation. Lots of adults report being famous kings, generals, philosophers, and scientists, or at least members of the nobility and the upper class, as opposed to the 99% of humanity that have historically been unknown nobodies that were lower class farmers and slaves. The popular reports of having been famous or otherwise socially prominent are so common that they've often been scoffed at, and among parapsychologists, there's a name. For such claims, they are often called famous past lives or FPLs. And serious parapsychologists doing reincarnation research view such FPLs with great skepticism. In an article in the Sci Encyclopedia, K.M. Weirstein reports A common stereotype concerning reincarnation is that people who claim to have lived before also claim to have been famous. This is by no means always the case. However, it is true that fantastical claims of lives as kings and queens, legendary heroes, great artists, and other historical notables do abound, most likely inspired by whimsy, desire to impress, or even mental health issues. Reincarnation researchers agree that the investigation of any such claims requires particular rigor and attach little significance to the overwhelming majority, although a very small number of cases have been shown to be strong. So serious parapsychologists are not gullible fools who just accept famous past life claims without question. Instead, they're highly skeptical of them. So I want to make that clear. And today we will not be looking at pop culture reincarnation cases. Instead, we will be looking at cases that have been carefully studied and critically and skeptically evaluated by parapsychologists. How will we proceed in our discussion? Once again, we're going to have a two-part look at the subject. Today, we'll be looking at modern reincarnation research in general. We'll be talking about the researchers themselves, about particular well-known cases, and about the general findings that reincarnation researchers have uncovered, such as statistics about reincarnation cases and the different types 
of reincarnation cases that occur in different cultures. Then next week, we'll go into analysis mode and look at the possible ways in which we could explain these cases. We'll look at explanations that are both natural and paranormal. We'll look at proposed explanations that do and do not involve actual reincarnation. And we'll look at these from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. How do you want to begin? By discussing Dr. Ian Stevenson, who we mentioned before, he, more than anyone else, really helped kick off the modern scientific study of reincarnation reports. He was born in 1918 in Montreal, Quebec, and he became an American citizen in 1949. He also became a professor of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, and he was only 38 years old when, in 1957, he moved to Charlottesville, Virginia. He joined their medical faculty as a tenured professor, and he also became the chair of the university's Department of Neurology and Psychiatry, all at the age of 38. So he was an up-and-coming academic with a promising career ahead of him. In the 1950s, he encountered the work of parapsychologist J.B. Rhine. Stevenson joined the American Society for Psychical Research, known as the ASPR, and he began to do progressively more parapsychological research. In the 1960s, he would give up the post of being chair of the department, and he would also give up his clinical psychiatric practice and focus exclusively on research, being the first holder of the chair of the Carlson Professor of Psychiatry, a post named after Chester Carlson, the millionaire inventor of the Xerox machine, who endowed the chair specifically for Stevenson to hold it. He also founded a sub-department at the University of Virginia's Neurology and Psychiatry Department. Originally, the sub-department was called the Department of, of Parapsychology, but in 1987, it was renamed the Division of Personality Studies and in 2005, it was renamed again as the Division of Perceptual Studies. Stevenson passed on to his reward in 2007 at the age of 88. How did he begin his reincarnation research? His first published work on the subject was a two-part essay that appeared in the ASPR Journal in 1960. According to the Science Encyclopedia, In the first part of this paper, Stevenson reported having found published accounts of 44 cases in which the deceased person whose life was recalled had been identified. In 28 cases, the subjects, all young children, had made at least six corroborated statements about deceased persons unknown to their families. In the second part of the paper, Stevenson called for further research on this phenomenon. Although he did not let on that he was thinking about doing this himself, by the time his article was published, he knew of several new cases in India and was trying to obtain funds to go there and investigate these cases. In 1961, Stevenson obtained a grant from the Parapsychology Foundation to go to India and Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, to study cases. He was able to look into 17 cases in India and three in Ceylon in the time he had available and continued to develop information about them through agents in those places. Later, with Chester Carlson's support, he went to Alaska and then to Brazil. In 1964, he traveled to Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. The more cases he studied around the world, the more impressed he became by the cross-cultural patterns in them. He selected 20 representative cases for his first book of case reports, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, which was published in the ASPR Proceedings in 1966 
then reprinted with follow-up information on 18 of the child's subjects by the University Press of Virginia in 1974. The book has been something of a bestseller and is still in print in its 1980 paperback edition. He went on to publish multiple additional books on reincarnation. These were principally focused on case studies of what Stevenson called cases of the reincarnation type, or C-O-R-T, which is pronounced court. And this is a standard term today, and so in the current pair of episodes, we will be referring to cases of the reincarnation type as court. The fact that they are called cases of the reincarnation type is meant to indicate that they are suggestive of reincarnation, but that reincarnation may not be the only explanation for them. They could be explained by something else. Incidentally, uh, reincarnation researcher Jim Matlock informs me that in standard parapsychological usage, court is both singular and plural. It stands for both case of the reincarnation type and cases of the reincarnation type. So people just say court, whether they're talking about one case or multiple cases. This was a new usage to me, so you may still hear me say courts anyway, um, but uh, I'm going to try to stick with standard usage and just say these court are really interesting, uh, even though it sounds like a singular, it's actually a plural. Stevenson also did other parapsychological studies on other topics, but he is most famous for his reincarnation work. Has anyone picked up his research work since he passed on in 2007? Stevenson worked with colleagues during his life, and he inspired a new generation of reincarnation researchers that continue to study the subject today. One of his closest collaborators was Dr. Jim Tucker, a child psychiatrist at the University of Virginia. Another was Dr. Erlander Haraldson, a professor of psychology at the University of Iceland. And another is the American anthropologist, Dr. J Dr. James or Jim Matlock. There are others as well, but those three are the more prominent recent authors uh, researching and writing on the subject. And uh, Dr. Matlock himself helped me with this episode and next week's episode, so I'll be thanking him. How did Stevenson and how do other researchers go about their work? One of the things they do is focus on veridical information. That means information that can be checked out and shown to be true. So one of the things that Stevenson and others do is make lists of claims by a person who reports remembering a past life, and then they check out those claims and see how many of them can be shown to be true, uh, how many can't be verified one way or the other, and how many can be shown to be false. If they find that the claims are true and that they are specific to a deceased individual in a way that goes beyond random chance, they refer to it as a solved case, whereas unsolved cases are ones where they can't verify that a specific person used to live who corresponds to the reported memories. So solved means that they believe that they have identified the previous person that the person in the reincarnation case is describing. How do they know that the current person didn't just watch a documentary or a movie or read a book and then forget about it? But all the knowledge they had of this past person really came from the source and they just don't remember it. Forgetting um, that you previously learned something is a phenomenon in psychology known as source amnesia. 
It's also sometimes called cryptomnesia. This word comes from Greek roots and means hidden memory. And reincarnation researchers take the possibility of cryptomnesia seriously because there have been cases where someone was reporting past life memories, but it turned out that they had earlier been exposed to the information they reported and just forgot that they had been exposed to it. This is particularly true in cases that involve hypnotic regression, which is not surprising since hypnosis promotes confabulation and you may be pulling information in your subconscious whose source you no longer remember. Cryptomnesia can be very hard to rule out in the cases of adults. Adults have been alive for multiple decades. They've been exposed to all kinds of information from numerous sources, and they've forgotten about most of these. So there's always a chance that they saw a show or read a book and have forgotten that it's the source of the information they're reporting. As a result, much, not all, but much recent reincarnation research tends to focus on children who spontaneously report past life memories. Children haven't been alive for nearly as long as adults, and they haven't been exposed to nearly as many sources of information. And the sources they have been exposed to are better known since the children are under adult supervision. So it's generally easier to rule out cryptomnesia in the case of a child than in the case of an adult. And so in our discussion today, we're going to be focusing on children in cases of the reincarnation type. There are also adults who report spontaneous past life memories, but today we're focusing on children since they are the primary subjects of modern parapsychological reincarnation research. How do researchers get the claims about a past life? Do they use hypnosis? Typically, no. Uh, we discussed hypnosis back in episode 52, and one of the things we discussed is the fact that no matter what you hear, Hypnosis is not a magic memory booster. In fact, it tends to promote confabulation or false memories as it encourages you to relax, become uncritical, and fantasize. It is not a good way of retrieving accurate information from memory. And that's what reincarnation researchers have also found. Trying to hypnotize people into remembering past lives does not generate good, quality, verifiable, or vertical information. Which is no doubt why so many of the claims that Virginia Tai made turned out not to be true. They were just things that she fantasized while hypnotized, and they didn't correspond to reality. Consequently, even though there are lots of pop New Age books about hypnotizing people into remembering past lives, uh, I read some of them when I was a teenager in my New Age phase, Serious parapsychologists who do reincarnation research tend not to use hypnosis because what it mostly produces is junk. Incidentally, in his book, Children Who Remember Past Lives, Ian Stevenson makes an interesting comment about the use of hypnosis and cryptomnesia. He writes, In some instances of ostensible regression to previous lives, the hypnotist has afterward asked the hypnotized subject in the same or a later session to tell the source of the material embodied earlier in the evoked previous life. Some subjects questioned in this way have then remembered and named a book or other source for some of the information included in the previous life. So sometimes hypnotic subjects will relate a past life scenario, but when they're asked how they came by the information in the scenario, they're able to name a real book that they read, indicating that cryptomnesia 
not an actual past life, was the apparent source of the information. In episode 224, and again in episode 225, we heard about the American psychic Edgar Casey. And one of the things that Casey did for his clients was life readings in which he would tap a psychic source of information and then tell clients about their past lives. Do modern reincarnation researchers typically use psychics to learn about past lives? No, and as we heard in the episodes on Edgar Casey, there is an argument to be made that he may have had some genuine psychic ability, but the past life readings he did were shot through with problems. There are all kinds of historical problems with the claims he made concerning other people's past lives, and serious parapsychologists who do reincarnation research have not found psychic practitioners like Edgar Casey or those who do similar practices to be able to produce good veridical information in past life readings, so they tend not to use psychic practitioners for this purpose. In Children Who Remember Past Lives, Stevenson himself commented on this problem. I believe the weakest evidence for reincarnation comes from persons who claim they can describe or read other persons' previous lives. Surely such claims provide as good an example as we can find of beliefs sustained in the absence of evidence. I suppose that those who pay for past life readings have confidence in what they are told, but I can find no support for such faith in any results known to me. Without their almost invariable commercial exploitation, past life readings would evoke more laughter than sadness. The previous lives depicted almost always occurred in the centers of history's cyclones. Such events as the Crusades, the French Revolution, the American Civil War, and above all, Jesus Christ's crucifixion, figure repeatedly in the readings of other persons' previous lives. I sometimes think that if all those said to have watched the crucifixion of Jesus in previous lives had actually done so, the Roman soldiers at that event would have had no place to stand. I find it surprising that most persons who have had one past life reading seem to have had no more. If they tested one reader against others, they might quickly wish to have their money back. So Stevenson, like other serious researchers, tends to put little credence or tended to put little credence in psychic readings concerning past lives. If they don't use hypnosis or psychics to do the reincarnation research, what do they use? They focus on apparent memories that are spontaneously produced by people and especially by children, on information that they come up with when they are not under the influence of hypnosis or similar states, and that the person himself comes up with, not what a different psychic practitioner reports. What they really want are verifiable claims that are spontaneously reported by an individual, particularly by a young child who has less chance of experiencing cryptomnesia. So how do they go about getting that evidence? Most children don't report remembering past lives, and if the memories are spontaneous, you can't use hypnosis or a psychic practice to induce them. This is one of the problems that serious reincarnation researchers face. They just have to wait until they hear about a child who is reporting past life memories. Then they want to move in and investigate the case as quickly as possible, because the longer they wait, the less valuable the evidence may be. Uh, what they really want to do is start their research before anyone has been identified as the previous person that the child is having memories of, because as soon as that person is identified, the child and the parents have been exposed to information about the previous person. 
and so the data pool becomes muddy. It may be that the child and his parents learn about this previous person, and then the child starts remembering things based on what they learned. Or it may be that the parents start misremembering what the child said before they learned the identity of the person, and they start reshaping what the child previously said in light of what they later learned. So the ideal is moving in and starting the investigation before the previous person has been identified. That way, they can be sure that the claims the child is making haven't been influenced by what they learned about the prior person. Unfortunately, this isn't always possible in practice, and so often they just have to do the best they can. These days, one of the ways that sometimes happens is by looking at time and date stamps on printouts of emails and electronic files that the parents of the child created before the previous person was identified. So, you know, if, 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 if you've got an email saying from one person to another saying, my child just said this about a past life, and you can see the date stamp is before they identified the previous person, then you can validate that the child was claiming that before the previous person was identified. So what's the general structure of an investigation? It varies by the circumstances, of course, but based on a general methodology that Stevenson pioneered, they first make contact with the family of the child in question. They seek to interview the child, the parents, and other members of the family. They document the claims that the child has been making, as well as anything else that's unusual about the child, such as the personality traits of the child, skills that the child wouldn't be expected to have, and unusual physical features of the child, like birthmarks or birth defects. And if, in the ideal case, the previous person has not yet been identified, they start checking the historical record to see if they can identify someone that corresponds with all this. As part of the process, they look at medical records, including death records of the previous person. If the previous person has surviving relatives, they also interview them, uh, whether or not the current family has made contact with the previous family. And they may do tests or at least record the results of tests that families did to see whether the child was able to correctly identify things from the previous person's life. Like, could the child recognize people that the previous person knew? And did the child mistakenly claim to recognize other people who the previous person did not know? They then write a report on their findings. Uh, sometimes these reports are published, such as in books or journal articles. Uh, these days, they may also be stored in, in an electronic database, such as one run by the University of Virginia. And the findings and their meaning are debated in the parapsychological literature. There's much more to investigating cases of the reincarnation type or court than that, but that provides us with a general sketch. Now that we've got a general overview of how this research works, let's give the listeners some examples of particular cases. What can you tell us? We'll look at more than one example, but we can't go too far into the literature for time reasons. I mean, this is a podcast rather than a book. So we'll look at four cases that have been reported, and then we'll look at some of the summary findings that reincarnation researchers have found, including the way reincarnation stories appear in different cultures and statistics that describe the cases. One of uh, our first case is one that was investigated by Ian Stevenson himself. It concerns a boy named Gopal Gupta, who was from India. 
In his book, Children Who Remember Past Lives, Stevenson reports, Gopal Gupta was born in Delhi, India on August 26, 1956. His parents were members of the lower middle class with little education. They noticed nothing unusual about Gopal's development in infancy and early childhood. Soon after Gopal began to speak, at the age of between two and two and a half years, the family had a guest at their house, and Gopal's father asked Gopal to remove a water glass that the guest had used. Gopal startled everyone by saying, I won't pick it up. I am a Sharma. Sharmas are members of the highest caste in India, the Brahmins. He then had a temper tantrum in which he broke some glasses. Gopal's father asked him to explain both his rude conduct and his surprising explanation for it. He then related many details about a previous life that he claimed to remember having lived in the city of Matura, which is about 160 kilometers or 100 miles south of Delhi. Gopal said that in Matura he had owned a company concerned with medicines, and he gave its name as Suk Shansharak. He said that he had had a large house and many servants, that he had had a wife and two brothers, and that he had quarreled with one of the brothers, and the latter had shot him. Gopal's claim to have been a Brahmin in the previous life explained his refusal to pick up the water glass, because Brahmins would not ordinarily handle utensils that a member of a lower caste had already touched. His own family were Banias, members of the businessmen's caste. Gopal's case illustrates three common patterns that often occur in reincarnation cases. We'll discuss the patterns more later, but the first is the age at which Gopal began to speak as if he remembered a past life. He was two to two and a half years old at the time, which is consistent with the age children are in most of these cases. Typically, they begin speaking of a previous life when they were, are between two and five years old. The second common pattern, especially in India, but also in other places, involves the previous person having been in more favorable circumstances than the present person is. In Gopal's case, he reported having been a member of the highest Brahmin caste, whereas he was now living in reduced circumstances in a lower caste. The third common pattern is that this case that this case illustrates is the violent death of the previous person. Gopal said that his prior life was ended when his brother shot him, and in a startling number of children reporting memories of a previous life, they report that the person suffered a violent, often unexpected death, like being murdered or being killed in a violent accident, and they report this in numbers that go way beyond how common murders and accidents are in ordinary society. But now that uh, the Gupta's child was making claims about a previous life, we embark on the investigation part of the account. Gopal's parents had no connection with the city of Matora, and his utterances about a life there stirred no memories in them. His mother did not wish to encourage Gopal to talk about the previous life he was claiming to remember, and at first his father felt indifferent about the matter. Gopal's mother's reluctance in this matter is also common in Indian culture. Parents may not wish their children to remember or talk about previous lives, especially when unfavorably comparing their present circumstances to a former life in better circumstances. And they may fear that the child will become alienated from them and seek to rejoin the earlier person's family. But Gopal's father was less concerned about this. 
From time to time, he told friends about what Gopal had been saying. One of these friends vaguely remembered having heard about a murder in Mathura that corresponded to Gopal's statements, but this did not stimulate Gopal's father to go to Mathura and verify what Gopal had been saying. Eventually, he went to Mathura in 1964 for a religious festival, and while there, he found the Sukh Shanchara company and queried its sales manager about the accuracy of what Gopal had been saying. What he said impressed the manager because one of the owners of the company had shot and killed his brother some years earlier. The deceased man, Shaktipal Sharma, had died a few days after the shooting on May 27, 1948. The manager understandably told the Sharma family about the visit of Gopal's father. And now we come to something that often happens in these cases. If the earlier person can be identified, there can be a meeting of the two families, which can be natural. If someone is claiming to be a member of your family, you may want to meet him and his other family. Similarly, if your family is claiming, if someone in your family is claiming to be a member of a different family, you may want to meet them and see if the child's memories check out or not. Some of the Sharma family then visited Gopal in Delhi, and after talking with him, invited him to visit them in Mathura, which he did. At the time of these meetings in Delhi and Mathura, Gopal recognized various persons and places known to Shaktipal Sharma and made additional statements indicating considerable knowledge of his affairs. The Sharma family found particularly impressive Gopal's mention of an attempt by Shaktipal Sharma to borrow money from his wife. He had wished to give this to his brother, who was a partner in the company, but a quarrelsome spendthrift. Shaktipal Sharma hoped to mollify his demanding brother by giving him more money, but his wife did not approve of appeasement and she refused to lend her husband the money. The brother became increasingly angry and then shot Shaktipal. The details of these domestic quarrels were never published and were probably never known to persons other than the family members concerned. The murder itself was widely publicized. Gopal's knowledge of these matters, his other statements, and some of his recognitions of persons known to Shaktipal Sharma convinced members of the Sharma family that he was Shaktipal Sharma reborn. Along with his statements about the previous life, Gopal showed behavior that a wealthy Brahmin might be expected to show, but that was inappropriate for his family. He did not hesitate to tell other family members that he belonged to a caste superior to theirs. He was reluctant to do any housework and said that he had servants for that. He would not drink milk from a cup anyone else had used. As Gopal became older, he slowly lost his Brahmin snobbishness and adjusted to the modest circumstances of his family. He gradually talked less about the life of Shaktipal Sharma, but as late as 1974, his father thought that Gopal still remembered much about it. Here, Stevenson is alluding to another common pattern in court, which is that children typically only talk about past life memories for a few years, and then they seem to forget about them. They typically start talking about a past life between ages two and five, and then they typically stop talking about them between ages five and eight, which corresponds to the age when early childhood amnesia that we all experience can set in. As adults, they typically remember much less about what they said as children. They sometimes don't even remember making any such claims at all, and they may report having no past life memories as adults. Now, here's Stevenson's assessment of the Gopal Gupta case. Gopal's case seems to me a strong one 
with regard to the small chance that he could have obtained normally the knowledge he had about the life and death of Shaktipal Sharma. It is true that Shaktipal Sharma belonged to an important family in Mathura, and his murder was prominent news when it happened. However, the Sharmas and the Guptas lived in widely separated cities and belonged to different castes and economic classes. Their social orbits were totally different. And I have no hesitation in believing members of both families who said that they had never heard of the other family before the case developed. So Stevenson thinks that this is one of the stronger cases. It's possible that Gopal had learned about the murder of Shaktipal Sharma through normal means by overhearing someone discuss it, but it's much less likely that he would have learned about the other details of Shaktipal Sharma's life that had not been publicized. So Stevenson thinks this is a strong case. And to his credit, he also includes weaker cases in his writings and frankly acknowledges the fact that they are weaker. But here we'll be focusing on the stronger ones. Our next case involves a Native American boy named Corliss Chotkin Jr. He was a member of the Thlingit tribe in Alaska, and the Thlingit are one of the Native American peoples that have historically believed in reincarnation. This case started with a prediction by an elderly Thlingit fisherman of Alaska, Victor Vincent, who told his niece, Irene Chotkin, that after his death, he would be reborn as her son. This is something that happens in some tribal societies. It's referred to as planned reincarnation. In some societies, people will announce their plans to reincarnate in a certain location, in a certain family line, or to a certain person, like Victor Vincent did here, announcing that he would be reborn as his niece's son. But there are often signs that will be given to help confirm that the new person is the same as the earlier one. He showed her two scars from minor operations, one near the bridge of his nose and one on his upper back. And as he did so, he said that she would recognize him in his next incarnation by birthmarks on his body corresponding to these scars. Victor Vincent died in the spring of 1946. About 18 months later, on December 15, 1947, Irene Chotkin gave birth to a baby boy who was named after his father. Corliss Chotkin Jr. had two birthmarks, which his mother said were exactly at the sites of the scars to which Victor Vincent had drawn her attention on his body. By the time I first examined these birthmarks in 1962, both had shifted, according to Irene Chotkin, from the positions they had had at Corliss's birth. Yet they remained quite visible, and the one on Corliss's back impressed me strongly. It was an area on the skin about 3 centimeters in length and 5 millimeters in width. Compared with the surrounding skin, it was darker and slightly raised. Its resemblance to the healed scar of a surgical wound was greatly increased by the presence at the sides of the main birthmark of several round marks that seemed to correspond to positions of the small round wounds made by needles that placed the stitches used to close surgical wounds. The reason that Stevenson goes on at length about the birthmarks is that they are often taken as signs of reincarnation in some societies, and he found them in his casework. The birthmarks often correspond to wounds that the previous person suffered, such as wounds inflicted during their uncommonly violent deaths. Although, in the case of Victor Vincent, he pointed to wounds that were actually scars he had received as a result of minor medical operations. And Stevenson said that one of Corliss Chotkin's birthmarks looked very much like a surgical scar and was even surrounded by small round 
marks that looked like they could correspond to the sutures used to sew the wound shut on Victor Vincent. In some societies in Asia, they even mark the bodies of the dying or the dead with a substance like soot or paste so that when the person is reborn, they will have birthmarks corresponding to the marks that they put on the body of the earlier person so that they can be recognized uh, as the earlier person when they come back. Stevenson referred to these deliberately induced marks as experimental birthmarks. Stevenson initially wasn't attentive to birthmarks, but after learning about them in some of these societies, he did a lot of work on them. He even wrote a big, long two-volume work about them called Reincarnation and Biology. Now, one of the things about tribal societies that believe in reincarnation is that they tend to not do a lot of rigorous validation of reincarnation claims. They're not skeptical Westerners doing reincarnation research. Members of their culture believe in reincarnation, so when someone is born with birthmarks that they perceive as corresponding to the wounds or the experimental birthmarks they remember being on a previous person, they can just accept this new person as that other one that has now come back. The birthmarks alone can be considered proof of reincarnation. But Westerners typically want more evidence than that. And there was more in the case of Corliss Chotkin. When Corliss was only 13 months old and his mother was trying to get him to repeat his name, he said to her petulantly, Don't you know who I am? I am Kakodi. This was the tribal name Victor Vincent had had. When Irene Chotkin mentioned Corliss's claim that he was Kakodi to one of her aunts, the latter said that she had dreamed shortly before Corliss's birth that Victor Vincent was coming to live with the Chotkins. Irene Chotkin was certain that she had not previously told her aunt about Victor Vincent's prediction inside return as her son. This reflects another aspect that is reported to occur in reincarnation cases. Someone, often the mother, but not always, in this case it was an aunt, may have a dream in which the previous person announces that he will be reborn or otherwise come to stay with the new family. These are referred to as announcing dreams because the earlier person announces his intention to reincarnate in a particular family. And in some societies, these dreams, like birthmarks, are often taken as proof of reincarnation. If you get an announcing dream saying that someone is going to come live with you or will be your child, then you regard your child as the reincarnation of that person. So the Corliss-Chotkin case involved both birthmarks and an announcing dream. But that wasn't all, since Corliss verbally identified himself as Kakodi or Victor Vincent. Furthermore, when Corliss was between two and three years old, he spontaneously recognized several persons whom Victor Vincent had known, including Victor Vincent's widow. Irene Chotkin said that he also mentioned two events in the life of Victor Vincent, about which she did not think he could have obtained information normally. In addition, Corliss showed several behavioral traits corresponding to similar ones that Victor Vincent had shown. Corliss combed his hair in a manner closely resembling the style of Victor Vincent. Both Corliss and Victor Vincent stuttered. Both had a strong interest in boats and in being on the water. Both had strong religious propensities, and both were left-handed. Corliss also had a precocious interest in engines and some skill in handling and repairing them. His mother said he had taught himself how to run boat engines. It is unlikely that Corliss inherited or learned this particular skill 
from his father, who had little interest in engines or skill with them. This brings out another aspect of reincarnation cases. The child may not just report memories of being the earlier person, like knowing his name or recognizing people from the earlier, earlier person's life. The child may also behave like the former person. He may have skills that the previous person had, or he may like the same foods that the previous person did or have the same interests. These behavioral parallels are distinct from what we typically think of as autobiographical memories, but they are still elements of our personalities. But, as tends to happen, Corliss's memories began to fade. After the age of about nine, Corliss made fewer remarks about the previous life he had seemed to remember earlier, and by 1962, when I first met him, he said that he remembered nothing about it. I met Corliss and his family three times in the early 1960s, and once more in 1972. At the time of this last meeting, Corliss had almost completely lost the stuttering that formerly afflicted him, but he still stuttered when he became excited. His interest in religion had diminished, but he had maintained his interest in engines. So Corliss in integrated into his new life and eventually forgot about the former one that he reported. Our third case comes from here in America, and it's a bit unusual that children reporting memories of other lives are much more common in parts of the world like India or Thailand, where most of the population believes in reincarnation. But such cases do occasionally occur in parts of the world where that isn't the case. So let's hear about a case involving a girl named Susan Eastland. Stevenson reports, I first learned of this case in 1968 when I received a letter from Charlotte Eastland who, having read about my research in a magazine, volunteered information about the statements and behavior of her daughter, Susan. These suggested that Susan had memories, albeit fragmentary ones, of the life of her deceased older sister, Winnie. Winnie was a lovable six-year-old girl who was hit by an automobile and fatally injured in 1961. Her sudden death devastated the members of her family. Her mother suffered grievously and found herself longing to have Winnie somehow back in the family. At this time, she had only the vaguest notions about reincarnation. She told me later that she had heard about the belief held by people in India that humans can be reborn as non-human animals, which she considered impossible. But she had never heard of reincarnation in another human body. Nevertheless, the family members had an idea that Winnie might somehow return to them. And this is a fairly common theme in court. Often, people will conclude that a deceased member of the family is being reborn to come back to them, like in the Victor Vincent Corliss Chotkin case. But it also happens with parents who have lost children and very much wish to have them back. And also note that this is another case involving a violent, unexpected death because Winnie was struck by an automobile. About six months after Winnie's death, her older sister Sharon dreamed that Winnie was coming back to the family. And when Charlotte Eastland became pregnant two years later, she dreamed of Winnie being with the family again. In 1964, when she was in the delivery room for the birth of her new baby, her first husband, the father of all her children, thought he heard Winnie's voice saying distinctly, Daddy, I'm coming home. The baby, Susan, thus came into a family that had lost a girl just a few years earlier, and that had some expectations that this same girl would be reborn among them. 
So here we have two announcing dreams, one from Susan's older sister and one from her mother, and an audible apparition heard by her father when he was in the, in the delivery room. But the question would be whether Susan would exhibit any memories of Winnie. When Susan was about two years old, she made several statements that seemed like references to the life of Winnie. When anyone asked her about how old she was, she would answer that she was six, the age Winnie had been when she was killed. Her sense of being older than her actual age persisted at least up to the age of five, because at that time she insisted that she was older than her brother Richard, who was then 11. Winnie had been more than three years older than Richard, so Susan's remark was correct for Winnie, but obviously wrong with regard to her own age relationship to Richard. Susan expressed unusual interest in two photographs of Winnie and said of them, that was me. Charlotte Eastland thought that she might earlier have told Susan that the photographs were of Winnie, but she had not told Susan that she thought she, Susan, might be Winnie reborn. Susan not only identified the photographs as being of her, she insisted on having them for herself. She kept one hanging by her bed and carried the other around with her for weeks, sometimes repeating that it was a photograph of herself. Susan never asked to be called Winnie, but on one occasion, when she could barely scrawl, she took a crayon and wrote letters on the kitchen door that spelled W-I-N-N-I, Winnie. During this same period, Susan frequently used the phrase, when I went to school, and she talked also about playing on the swings at school. Susan had not yet gone to school, and she had played on a swing in the family's backyard, but not on one at a school. Winnie, on the other hand, had started school before she was killed, and she used to play on the swings at her school. She described an occasion when she and other members of the family had gone to a beach and had caught a crab, and she named family members present on this outing. Charlotte Eastland recalled that the family had gone to a beach in the state of Washington the year before Winnie's death. They had played in the surf and on the sand. They had found shells and dug for clams. Charlotte Eastland could not, however, remember that they had caught a crab. Susan correctly named three of the four persons who had been present, but she included one person, her stepfather, who had not. Later, however, she corrected herself and said that Winnie's and her father had been present. Susan also referred to playing in a pasture with her sister Sharon. She said that she had been unafraid of the horses and that she had once walked under a horse. All this was correct for Winnie, who had played in a pasture with Sharon, was unafraid of horses, and had once walked under one. Susan's mother also asked her if she remembered Uncle George, who had lived up the street from them. Susan could not remember what Uncle George's house looked like, but said that she remembered him and then added, We used to stop and see him before going to school and play a while. This had been Winnie's custom. In fact, she had stopped to play at Uncle George's house on the day she was killed. Uncle George lived in the town where the family lived during Winnie's life. Susan was born and had lived all her life in another, smaller town of Idaho. So Susan seems to have memories of her older sister Winnie, who had lived before she was born. But interestingly, she didn't claim to be Winnie. Susan never directly said anything like, I was Winnie or I am Winnie. She came closest to such a statement when she claimed that the photographs of Winnie were of herself. She had memories that, in her mother's expression, seemed to be of a long time ago. She remembered doing things that Winnie had done, 
but that she, Susan, had not. Susan's memories of Winnie's life were not, however, organized into a more or less coherent pattern, as are the memories of many other subjects in these cases. Put another way, we might say that although Susan had memories of her previous life, she seemed not to have an explicit idea that she had lived before. On the other hand, Susan also had a possibly significant birthmark. Susan had a small birthmark on her left hip. It was an area of increased pigmentation, nevus, about 1.3 centimeters by 1 centimeter. Its location corresponded fairly closely to the site of the most serious injury Winnie received when she was struck by the automobile and fatally injured. I obtained a copy of Winnie's medical records from the hospital to which she was taken after the automobile struck her and where she died. No other member of the family had a similar birthmark. Now, I want to look at one last story of a childhood memory case. This one involves a phenomenon that is not at all common, but it does appear in the literature. Some families do report this, and it will suggest some possibilities that we need to consider later. So here is the story of an Indian boy named Jasper Lal Jat. Stevenson reported on this case in his book, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation. But the account of it is quite lengthy, so we'll be quoting from a summary article in the Science Encyclopedia by K.M. Weirstein. Yasmir Laljat was born in 1950 in the village of Rasalpur in northern India. At three and a half, he contracted smallpox and appeared to die. As it was nighttime, his burial was postponed until morning. While waiting, the father noticed Jasper's body stirring, and eventually the child regained consciousness. It was some days before he could speak, and weeks before he could speak clearly, as he slowly recovered from the disease. And this is very common in this rare type of case. The person involved, usually a young person, is severely injured or sick, and appears to die, only for something very strange to happen when they recover. When Jasper was again able to express himself, it was clear that his personality had entirely changed. He stated that he was the son of Shankar of Vahedi village and wanted to return there. He refused to eat the food served him, saying he was a Brahmin, a higher caste than his family's Jat caste, to the extent that he might have starved had not a Brahmin neighbor agreed to cook for him in the Brahmin manner. After about a year and a half, the family began to cook for Jasper themselves, and discovering it had caused him no harm, he eventually joined them in their meals. Describing his previous life, Gaspier said he had died after being given poisoned sweets at a wedding ceremony by a man who owed him money. The poison, he said, disoriented him while he was riding in a chariot during the post-wedding procession, causing him to fall off and die of a head injury. Gaspier's father tried to keep his son's claims secret, but they nevertheless came to the attention of Brahmin village residents one of whom was the wife of a man from Vahedi. While she was visiting, Yasmir addressed her in a manner that would have been appropriate for his previous self, but entirely inappropriate to his current situation. She discussed the incident back in Vahedi, and it was eventually realized that the details described by Yasmir matched a recently deceased Vahedi resident, Soba Ram, son of Sri Shankar Lal Tiagi, who died age 22 in a chariot accident. Now, this is a key detail, and it's what makes the Jasper Jot case so unique. 
Josber himself was three and a half years old when he appeared to die. That occurred in April or May of 1954. The date is not 100% certain. And when he recovered, he was reporting himself to be a man named Sobaram. But Sobaram had only recently died. Uh, Sobaram apparently died on or about May 22nd, 1954. So Sobaram died at basically the exact same time that Jasper seemed to die. That means that instead of Jasper being born with memories of Sobaram, he apparently acquired them when he was three and a half years old. Now back to the story. The family of Sobaram knew nothing of their son being owed money, nor of him having been poisoned, although they had suspected it at the time. Sobaram's father and other family members visited Razalpur, and Jasmir was able to recognize them and correctly identify his relationships with them. A few weeks later, a resident of Vihedi brought Jasmir there and asked him to lead the way from the railway station to the Tiagi Trawadrangle, a gathering place for male family members separate from the house. He did so without difficulty and was also able to lead the way from another villager's home to the Tiagi house. And Jasper's knowledge of Sobaram's life turned out to be very extensive. Yasbir made the following statements about his former life that were verified as accurate by the witnesses interviewed. He was the son of Shankar of Hedi. Shankar Lal Tayagi's son had died about the same time Yasbir made the statement. His name had been Sobaram. He said this only to his former father. There was a culvert, a water tunnel, in Vehedi. Rasalpur did not have one. There was a peepal tree in front of his house in Vehedi. His wife was from the village of Molna. He had a chariot he used to attend weddings. The Tayagi family still owned it at the time of the investigation. He had died while returning home from a wedding in Nirmana, a village about three miles north of Rasalpur, after falling from the chariot. The chariot was drawn by oxen, one white with long horns and one black with short horns, though one witness disagreed about the colors and horns of the oxen. At the city nearby, Yasbir at age four pointed in the direction of Vehedi and said, My village is on this side. There was a tamarind tree in front of the Tayagi's courtyard, or quadrangle. The Tayagi house had a well that was half inside and half outside the house. He had a son named Baleshwar, an aunt named Ramkali, and a sister named Kela. His mother's name was Sona, his mother-in-law's was Kerpi, and his wife's was Sumantra. When he died, he had ten rupees and a black coat inside a box. He had been bitten by a dog at a house to which he had gone to borrow a cot. Yasbir's claim that Sobaram had eaten poison sweets and his identifying the murderer were not verified. The Tayagis did not know whether he had eaten sweets prior to his death, but did recall he had eaten some betels. This refers to his chewing betel nuts, which are often called areca nuts, which are often used kind of like a form of chewing gum in Southeast Asia, including India. You don't swallow them, but you chew them and then spit them out. As reported by his parents and other witnesses following his transformation, Yasbir strongly identified with his past incarnation, saying, I am the son of Shankar of Vihedi. He also used a vocabulary more typical of Brahmin speech, such as the word Haveli rather than Hili for house. Ian Stevenson observed that he felt a strong attachment to the Tiagi family, both in 1961 
1964, and was particularly attached to Sobaram's son. He threatened to run away to the Tiagi family at least once and would cry at the end of his visits to Vahedi. He thought of himself as an adult with family and possessions in his former village. At the age of six, he said to his mother when she was ill that if she needed money for treatment, he had some in Vahedi. During visits to Vahedi, he recognized people there with whom the Tayagis had quarreled and avoided speaking to them. In 1961, Stevenson noted that Yazbir would not play with other children in Razalpur. His father reported that prior to his transformation, he had enjoyed toys and play, but afterward appeared to have lost interest in them. In 1964, Stevenson noted that Yazbir seemed more depressed than three years before, apparently frustrated by being unable to spend time in Vahedi. His family was reluctant to let him visit, worried that he preferred the Tayagi family to them. They said they had disbelieved his claims at first, but came to respect them when they were verified. For their part, the Tayagi family entirely accepted Yazbir as the reincarnation of Sobaram. And this is one of the things that can happen in such cases. The current person's family may feel threatened by the earlier person's family. They may feel or fear that the child will run away and join the other family, especially if the other family accepts them as the reincarnation of their departed loved one. In this case, Jasper's own personality never returned. He continued to identify himself as Sobaram from then on. As a result, this is what is known as a case of replacement reincarnation, where a person is born with one personality, but then, usually after a major health crisis, they suddenly have the personality of a recently deceased person. It's as if their spirit has been replaced by the spirit of someone else, hence replacement reincarnation. Is this the same thing as the walk-ins that are talked about in some New Age circles? No, although it has some elements in common with that concept. We'll talk about walk-ins in a future episode, and just so people know what we're talking about right now, they do allegedly involve one person's spirit being replaced by another. The replacement spirits in walk-in cases are claimed to be enlightened beings who are here to guide humanity. Uh, they're said to negotiate the replacement with the departing personality, and they retain the memories of the person they're replacing and then go on a mission to help people. None of that was the case here. There was a sudden involuntary change in Jasper Jot after his health crisis. There was no negotiation. The new personality that replaced him was not an advanced being, but just a local guy who had died. And he wasn't on a mission to benefit mankind. Sobaram just mysteriously seemed to end up in Jasper's body, although Stevenson did ask Sobaram how that happened. This involves what are known as intermission memories, which are held to be memories of the period between two lifetimes. In 1961, Stevenson asked Yasver whether he had any intermission memories from between his death as Sobaram and the moment he entered his current body. He answered that after dying, he met a sadhu holy man or saint, who advised him to take cover in the body of Yasber Lal Jat. And encountering spiritual beings who give you advice about reincarnation are reported in some intermission memories. In this case, apparently, Sobaram had just died, Jasper also had seemingly died, and the holy man advised Sobaram to take shelter in Jasper's body now that it was available. 
Stevenson was not able to meet Yasbury again until 1971, at which time he was 20. He had attended school up until 1969 and was now helping his father cultivate his lands. He would visit Fahedi every three or four months, and on the last visit before speaking with Stevenson, he had spent two and a half months there working in the Tayagi family's fields. The Tayagis regarded Yasbury as a full member of their family, consulting him on the marriages of Sobaram's son, whose wedding he attended, and one of his daughters. He thus did integrate into both families and spent time with both. Unlike most cases of the reincarnation type, Jasper's memories of Sobaram did not fade away, and he ultimately got some satisfaction from the man he said had poisoned him. He continued to maintain he had been poisoned at the wedding ceremony by a man who was trying to avoid repaying a debt. Stevenson says Yasbir named the individual but does not give the name. By this time, the alleged murderer had paid Yasbir 600 rupees, a somewhat greater sum than the debt of 300 or 400 rupees Yasbir had spoken of in 1961. Stevenson did not interpret this payment as admission of guilt, but he writes, We certainly can consider it as evidence of this man's conviction that Yasbir was in fact Sobaram reborn. So Jasper eventually got paid back by the guy he said had poisoned him, but his original personality as Jasper Jot never returned. Jasper continued to retain Brahmin habits and attitudes. He considered Brahmin superior to other castes, refused to eat food cooked in earthen pots, and wore a sacred thread around his neck, which Jot caste members do not do. His family accommodated him by cooking in metal pans and allowing him to eat first. When Stevenson asked him for his mailing address, he gave his name as Yasber Singh Tayagi, son of Gerardi Lal Jat, acknowledging both his physical and past life paternities. He expected to marry a Jat woman, however. Yasber said that in his dreams, he still saw the discarnate Sadhu who had advised him to enter his current body, and he claimed that he had received from this figure accurate predictions of the future. Stevenson notes he later found other cases, notably in Thailand and Burma, where subjects remembered having received advice from a spiritual being during the interlife period, who subsequently appeared to them in dreams. So that is the strange case of the replacement reincarnation of Jasper Jat. However, such cases are rare in reincarnation literature, and they have marked differences from other cases of the reincarnation type. With those examples, we're now in a position to look at the patterns that appear in cases of the reincarnation type or court. And before we do that, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including JJ, Vicky R, Scott K, Jennifer S, and Justin W. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Jimmy, let's back up and take a look at these cases in overview. You've mentioned some of the characteristics they tend to have. What have researchers discovered about the patterns they tend to exhibit? For a start, 
do they tend to occur in certain places rather than others? In statistical terms, they do. The majority of court occur in areas where there is a widespread belief in reincarnation. In Children Who Remember Past Lives, Stevenson wrote, Persons who claim that they remember a previous life are easily found in certain areas of the world. These are northern India, Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, south-central Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, West Africa, and the northwestern region of North America among tribal people. All of those areas are ones where the local culture or a subgroup within it believes in reincarnation. However, court are also reported in parts of the world that don't have as prominent a belief in reincarnation and in families that don't believe in reincarnation, though they are significantly less common. How do researchers explain that? It could be explained in different ways. Skeptics could argue that the reason you find reincarnation cases in places where people believe in reincarnation is that the local culture produces them. In other words, reincarnation doesn't happen. And the reports that it does are a cultural phenomenon generated by the local belief in it. However, researchers who believe in reincarnation could reply that the difference between different areas in reincarnation case reports is due to a data reporting issue. In cultures where there is a widespread belief in reincarnation, court get reported. But in cultures that lack this belief, they get ignored or suppressed so that children who report past life memories get dismissed by their parents as just playing make-believe, or they otherwise tell them to keep quiet so that other people won't think they're weird, and thus the cases don't get reported. How frequent are the reports? They are not common, even in areas where there is a high belief in reincarnation. Stevenson writes, in 1978, two of my associates, Dr. David Barker and Dr. Satwan Pazrika, conducted a systematic survey of cases on a sample of persons living in a designated part of the Agra district in Uttar Pradesh, India. They found an incidence of approximately two cases per thousand inhabitants. We need similar surveys in other regions of India as well as in other countries. So two in a thousand or one in 500 is a pretty low rate. And the numbers would be expected to be lower in areas that don't have a widespread belief in reincarnation. Here is how Stevenson describes the archetypal case of the reincarnation type. A fully developed case has five major features. One, it begins with a person, usually an elderly one, predicting that he will be reborn after he dies. He often indicates to which parents or what place he would like to return. Two. He later dies, and then someone, not necessarily a member of his family, dreams about his returning to a particular family. 3. The baby is born and is found to have birthmarks, or perhaps birth defects, that correspond to wounds or other marks on the body of the deceased person whose reincarnation was expected. 4. Soon after the baby begins to speak, he makes statements, rudimentary at first and then more detailed, about the deceased person's life. 5. Finally, the child behaves in ways that are unusual in his family, but that informants say match behavior that the deceased person had shown or that might have been expected of him. Thus, the fully developed case has a prediction of rebirth, a dream, a birthmark or birth defect, statements about the previous life by the child, and associated unusual behavior.
However, few cases show all five of these features. In particular, the first of the factors that Stevenson names, uh, that of the previous person predicting that he will be reborn and saying where or to which parents, that isn't actually common. It, it does happen among the Tlingit in North America and the Tibetans in Asia, but it's quite rare elsewhere. So you could challenge that as a universal element. But with that exception, the others do appear frequently, and we saw examples of each one of these in the different cases we heard about earlier. These cases, characteristics are basically universal characteristics in court, and they occur all over the world. We've also mentioned another universal pattern, which concerns when children begin reporting past life memories. For the rare children that do report them, they typically begin doing so between the ages of two and five. And the memories typically begin to fade, and the children thus stop talking about them between the ages of five and eight, though some do retain at least partial memories later in life. Also, very interestingly, the majority of children who report such memories are boys. According to Stevenson's figures, about two-thirds of the children involved in court are boys, and only around a third are girls. Why that would be has not been established, but it is mostly boys that report these memories. Most of the cases involve people from the same religious and cultural background. It is rare for children to have memories of someone who lived in another country. The international cases are, are rare, and most of the reported memories involved someone who lived quite close by. Usually, they lived within a distance of about 30 miles or 50 kilometers of where the previous person had died. If they are farther away than that, they are referred to as long-distance cases. It should be noted that this pattern appears in Stevenson's data, which are heavily weighted towards Asia, and longer distances are reported in European and American cases. And often, the previous person lived in a more advantaged situation than the present child does. For example, in India, two-thirds of the court subjects lived in lower socioeconomic conditions than the person they had memories of, though that may not apply in other countries where social and economic differences are not as pronounced. Those are patterns that deal with the children who report memories of past lives. Are there any patterns when it comes to the people that they report memories of? There are, and perhaps the most significant is that the previous person often died a violent death. Fully half of the cases involved an earlier person who died due to warfare, murder, suicide, or accidents. And that's way higher than the percentage of people in normal society that die such deaths. So there's a definite connection between violent deaths and cases of the reincarnation type. Also, not only are the children who report such memories predominantly male, so are the individuals who are the previous persons that died. And this applies regardless of whether the current child is male or female. The odds are that no matter which gender they are now, they're going to be reporting memories from someone who is male. There could be a number of reasons for that. From a skeptical perspective, it could be due to the fact that human cultures tend to give men more social status, so the children report having been men. But it also could be because men take more physical risks 
than women do, they're more likely to die as a result of warfare, murder, suicide, or accident, and thus they are reported more frequently in court because of how common violent deaths are in these cases. What about the earlier individuals who didn't die a violent death? Do they show any patterns? Yes. When it comes to people who died in old age through natural causes, they tended to practice a religious or mental discipline. Many of the earlier people were highly religious before their deaths, or at least they practiced a mental discipline like meditation. How long is the gap between the earlier person's death and the birth of the child in a court? It varies, but it's very different than in the popular reincarnation accounts you hear about in the media. When an adult gets a psychic reading or is hypnotized, it's often claimed that they lived long ago. Um, For example, Virginia Ty was born in 1923, but she said that Bridie Murphy had died in 1864. So that's a gap or intermission of basically 60 years. And we often hear of people who previously lived much longer ago than that, like in the 17th and 18th centuries, or the Middle Ages, or the time of Christ, or ancient Atlantis, or Egypt, or whatever. But in court involving children, the time frame is much shorter. In an article for the Science Encyclopedia, James Matlock writes, Stevenson found that the median intermission length, death to birth, in 616 solved cases to be 15 months based on the 1986 figures. There was a great deal of cultural variation, however. The median intermission was four months among the Haida near British Columbia, Canada, and eight months among the Druze in the Middle East, but longer than nine months in most other places. It was 12 months in India, 16 months in Sri Lanka, 21 months in Burma, and 34 months among the Igbo in West Africa. In non-tribal American cases, it was 141 months, almost 12 years. If cases that have come to light since 1986 are included, the median for American cases is much longer. In the 22 published cases from the Americas, with reliable information in intermission length, the median intermission is eight and a half years. In the 32 solved European cases, it is 33 months, just under three years. All of these intermission links between the death of the previous person and the birth of the current child are much shorter than in the reincarnation cases in pop media. But there's still a good bit of variation. The global average is something like 15 months between death and rebirth, so just over a year. But there's a lot of variation within different cultural groups, ranging from just four months among the North American tribe known as the Haida on the low side to 141 months, almost 12 years, among non-tribal American cases. Those figures undoubtedly will adjust in the future as more cases are documented and researched, but they give us a general idea, and the length of the intermission is clearly a culturally linked factor. Then let's talk about the factors that are known to be culturally linked. What else have researchers uncovered that is linked to culture? We already mentioned that cases of the reincarnation type are much more commonly reported in some parts of the world compared to others. If the local culture or subculture believes in reincarnation, they are much more common. If the local culture doesn't believe in reincarnation, they are rare. And 
we talked about the different ways that believers and disbelievers in reincarnation could interpret that. How strong the cases are and how easy they are to solve, meaning identify a single earlier person that the child is describing, is also culturally linked. In the article Patterns in Reincarnation Cases in the Science Cyclopedia, Jim Matlock writes, Cases vary not only in how regularly they are reported, but in how strong they are, as measured by number of statements, behaviors, and physical signs they include. Tribal cases tend to have weaker phenomena than Asian cases, and past life identifications are frequently made on very slender evidence. In Western countries, not only are fewer cases reported, those which come to light are for the most part relatively weak. The weakness of the phenomena naturally has a bearing on how easy it is to identify the previous person, and is reflected in the ratios of solved to unsolved cases cross-culturally. In Stevenson's collection as it stood in 1983, 80% of Burmese, 79% of Lebanese, and 77% of Indian cases were solved, in contrast to only 20% of American non-tribal cases. So that's quite a remarkable difference, with 77 to 80% in some parts of the world being solvable, meaning it's possible to identify the previous person, whereas in American non-tribal cases, 80% are not solved. You mentioned that sometimes girls report having been boys in past lives. How often do people report having been of the opposite sex, and is that culturally linked? Some cultures are much more male-centered than others. People do report having been the opposite sex in a previous life, but this varies between cultures. For example, among the Druze, a religious group that lives mostly in Syria and Lebanon, they don't believe that it's possible for a person to change sex in reincarnation. If, if you're a male, you're always going to be reborn as a boy, and if you're a female, you're always going to be reborn as a girl. And they don't report any cases of people changing sex when they change lifetimes. But other cultures are different. The Eastern Kuchin people of Alaska and Canada traditionally expect that you switch sex from one lifetime to another, and they report a much higher rate of switches. And some cultures don't have beliefs about how common or uncommon it is to change sex. In his Science Encyclopedia article, James Matlock provides an overall summary of the present state of research. The case feature with the most pronounced cultural linkage is sex change between lives. In countries and tribal societies in which this is believed possible, such cases are found, whereas in countries and tribal societies where it is believed impossible, no such cases have been reported. As of 1986 in the United States, 15% of 60 non-tribal cases involved a change of sex. In Burma, 33% of 230 cases did. In Sri Lanka, the figure was 10%. The Kuchin traditionally held that all persons change sex between lives. Only 22, 50% of 44 cases Slobodin heard about between the 1930s and 1960s featured change of sex. But on a brief visit in 1977, Stevenson discovered that 6, 86% of 7 of Kuchin cases did. The Druze of Lebanon, the Alevi of Turkey, and the Haida of Alaska and British Columbia believed that one cannot change sex between lives and no sex change cases have been found among them. When there is a change of sex, boys and girls do not remember being of the opposite sex equally often. 
Three times as many girls claim to have been boys or men than boys claim to have been girls or women in Stevenson's collection as a whole. In the United States, 14 of 15 children, or 93%, who remembered the life of a person of the opposite sex was a girl. Only among the Igbo of West Africa did an equal number of boys and girls say they were of the opposite sex in their previous lives. So the percentage of cases that report having been of the other sex varies widely between cultures, with some cultures reporting no such cases, like the Druze, and between 50 and 80%, 86% of cases among the Kutchin involving it. And as we noted, when there is a difference of sex reported, the prior person is usually male, with three times as many girls reporting having been male than boys reporting having been female across Stevenson's whole corpus of cases. And here in America, 93% of the children who reported having been the opposite sex were girls saying they had been boys. Only in one culture, the Igbo tribe, did boys and girls equally report having been of the opposite sex. Are there any other culturally linked aspects of court that we should cover? We mentioned earlier that most cases involve people reincarnating close to where the earlier person lived, usually within 30 miles. But this is different in larger countries. In the United States and in India, both of which are geographically large, the distances are longer on average. But it's still rare for people to report having been someone who died in a completely different country. It does happen, but it's not common. So it's as if people are usually staying within the same country, and the size of the country may determine how close the point of birth is to the point of death. However, this may not be true in adult cases. Jim Matlock tells me, based partly on some cases that have not yet been published, that international cases are more common in adult rather than child cases of court. Another difference concerns the relationship between the earlier person and the current person. The earlier person may have been a relative of the current person's family. He may have been an acquaintance of the early person's family. Or he may be a stranger to the current person's family. Jim Matlock reports on the data. In tribal societies, the great majority of cases fall in family lines. As reported by Stevenson in 1986, 96% of Tlingit cases, 94% of Haida cases, and 92% of Igbo cases had family relationships. Mills found family relationships in 100% of the Giksan, Witsuwiten, and Beaver cases she studied. So in these societies, more than 90% of the cases had the earlier person as a member of the current person's family. What's more, which part of the family the person seems to reincarnate in is affected by how the society reckons kinship. Some cultures are patrilineal, meaning they reckon kinship according to the father's line. Ancient Israel was like this. You were reckoned as belonging to the line of your father. You were a member of a family based on who your male ancestors were. But other cultures are matrilinear, meaning they reckon kinship according to the mother's line. So you're a member of the family of your female ancestors, not your male ones. And some cultures are bilateral, 
meaning that you're reckoned as a member of the families of both, your male and female ancestors equally. Well, James Matlock explains, Even more strikingly, the case patterns follow the kinship structure of the society. The Tlingit, Haida, Gitsan, and Witsuwitan are all matrilineal, and their cases fall on the mother's side. The Igbo are patrilineal, and their cases fall on the father's side. The beaver reckon kinship bilaterally, through both parents equally, and their cases show a preference for neither side. The same is true of the Kutchin, who have an unusual number of reincarnations of outsiders as well. So in these tribal societies, where 90% of cases involve relatives, if the society is patrilineal, a court will occur in the father's line. If the society is matrilineal, a court will fall in the mother's line. And if the society is bilateral, a court could fall in either line. But when we come to other societies that aren't dominated by cases where the previous person is a relative of the current person's family, we find something very different. James Matlock continues, The patterns are very different in other societies. In India, only 16% had family relationships, 41% had acquaintance relationships, and 43% were strangers. In Sri Lanka, 19% of cases had family relationships, 29% had acquaintance relationships, and 52% were strangers. These figures relate to Stevenson's case collection, which includes many unpublished cases. The figures are very different for Western cases, reports of which have been published. Of 32 solved European cases, 60% have family relationships, 10% have acquaintance relationships, and 30% have stranger relationships. Of 27 solved published cases from the Americas, including Canada and Cuba, along with the United States, 56% have family relationships, 11% have acquaintance relationships, and 33% have stranger relationships. So in India, only 16% of previous persons were relatives, and the rest were split pretty evenly between acquaintances and strangers. In Sri Lanka, 20% were relatives, about 30% were acquaintances, and 50% about were strangers. But in the West, things are very different. In both Europe and America, about 55 to 60% were relatives, about 10% were acquaintances, and about 30% were strangers. So who the earlier person was varies widely by culture. How the earlier person died is also significant. James Matlock discovered that of solved cases where the earlier person was identified, if the earlier person committed suicide, he was almost certain to have memories of him reported by someone among the same group of family or friends. Out of 11 solved cases, 10 of the current persons were within the same family, and one of them was in a family that had been friends with the earlier person. None of them were strangers. Suicide cases also had shorter intermission periods, with the median intermission period going down to just three or four months, which is very short indeed. So these are the patterns that appear in reports of cases of the reincarnation type that we need to look at as we go forward and as we consider what could explain these reports from the perspectives of faith and reason. Anything else we should say before we go? 
I'd like to say a special thank you to Dr. James Matlock, who is one of the major reincarnation researchers today, uh, for reviewing the script for today's episode and sending me his feedback. Um, we have different views on some things, but he was kind enough to review the script ahead of time and send me his feedback. He also pointed out some minor things that needed to be fixed, but I was very gratified when he said of this week's script that, quote, overall, I'm quite impressed. It's very rare to see someone not in the field cover this material as well as you have, close quote. Well, I try to do my homework, and I appreciate his notes very much, and any remaining imperfections are mine. So I want to say a special thanks to Dr. Matlock. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to folks on this topic? We'll have links to Ian Stevenson's book, 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation, his book, Children Who Remember Past Lives, also James Matlock's book, Signs of Reincarnation, and a book that Matlock wrote with Erlander Haraldson called I Saw the Light and Came Here. We'll also have links to Jim Tucker's book, Life Before Life, and his book, Return to Life, as well as Paul Edwards' book, Reincarnation, A Critical Examination. We'll also have links to information about Ian Stevenson, patterns in reincarnation cases, famous past life claims, replacement reincarnation, and the account of Jasper Lal Jot. Very good. So that's it from us this time. We would love to hear your theories about the work of modern researchers on reincarnation. You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they've done on this episode. Um, they're available for hire to do video and animation work for you, and you can check out what they do by going to my YouTube channel, Jimmy, uh, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. Um, if you're one of our audio listeners, I highly recommend going to youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken and checking out an episode of Mysterious World and seeing how much the video adds to the experience. Also, I am trying to grow my channel, so I'd appreciate it if you subscribe. Uh, we're currently working on getting up to 50,000 subscribers. So subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get notified whenever I have a new video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the others I do. And while you're there, um, hit like and leave a comment because that engagement tells YouTube that you were interested in the video. And so other people may be interested in the video, too, and it will show the show it to more people and you can help the show grow that way. So thank you very much. Like, comment and subscribe. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, this week, we summarized the current state of reincarnation research. So next week, we'll go into analysis mode and look at the possible ways in which we could explain these cases. We will look at explanations that are both natural and paranormal. We'll look at proposed explanations that both do and do not involve actual reincarnation. And we'll be looking at them from the twin perspectives of reason and faith. And I'll be sharing thoughts with you that I have not seen published anywhere. As far as I can tell, they are new to reincarnation research, so you won't want to miss that. 
Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review of it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from to help us grow our community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 275. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins strengthen yourself to help further god's kingdom work out for the right reason with the right mindset learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com and by the grady group a catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the united states using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients learn more at gradygroupinc.com until next time jimmy aiken thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world thanks john And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who.